Please turn in your Bibles to the first chapter of Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 1. This morning we will be looking at verses 39 through 56. We've been looking at the work of grace in Mary's life. Mary, the virgin who gave birth to Jesus Christ. And this morning we come to verse 39 of Luke 1. And I'll read through verse 56. Hear God's word. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. What do you want to be when you grow up? That's one of the most uh, common questions that we will ask young children. But the plain truth of it is, typically the really young children that we ask the question, when they're five years old, they don't really care what they are when they grow up. And then when we get to about age 10 or so, we are filled with so many unrealistic expectations of what we will be when we grow up. I mean, I mean, I remember when I was 10 years old, I was bound to determine I was going to be center fielder for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and I had no doubt that I would get there someday. But then when you get to be about 15 years old, you start to really think seriously about what you want to be when you grow up, and hopefully, by the time you hit 20 or so, you'll have a pretty good idea of what you want to be when you grow up. And of course, some of us are 40 or after and still trying to figure out what we want to be when we grow up. But if you were an Israelite living in the times of the Old Testament, and somebody asked you that question, what do you want to be when you grow up? One of the most popular answers would have been, I want to be a parent of the Messiah. I want to be a parent of the Messiah. People in the Old Testament, ever since the fall, ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, 
And God graciously came and established a relationship with him and said that one day the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent, thereby undoing all the horrific effects of the fall. From that point on, every generation that was born on earth wanted to see the Messiah come in their day. Every father and mother hoped that their child would grow up to become the Messiah because that was the hope, that God would be faithful to his covenant promise and send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent and undo all the effects of the fall and restore creation and restore us and restore our relationship with the God that we offend with our sins to restore that relationship forever. That was the hope of every parent. I give you just one example of it in Genesis 6, very early in human history. In Genesis chapter 6, there's a man named Lamech, who it says, fathered a son, and according to the text, it said he called his name Noah. And the name Noah means rest. He called his son rest. Why did he do that? It says, this is a quote from Lamech, he said, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief or shall bring us rest from our work and the painful toil of our hands. He had hoped that his son Noah, whom he called rest, would be the one to bring rest from the curse, to bring rest to the creation, to restore all things. And in a limited sense, it was a prophecy, and in a limited sense it came true, because in Noah and through Noah's life, God cleansed the earth of all the wickedness and restored it, but not back to what it was, not like the ultimate Messiah would. It was only a restart, still under the curse. But notice how Lamech's desire was that his son Noah might be the one who would bring ultimate rest. And every generation hoped that they would see that coming of the Messiah. Well, last week we saw how Mary was the chosen one. Mary received a word from the angel Gabriel that she, although she was a poor teenage peasant girl who was betrothed to marry the village carpenter, she was the one that was chosen of God to give birth to the one who would be the Messiah. But what I don't think she probably fully understood, that this was going to be that the Messiah would be of a whole different nature than what most in Israel expected. That this Messiah would be born the Son of God. That the Holy Spirit would overshadow her and that she would conceive and give birth as a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. And that this child would be uniquely fully God and also fully man. Can you imagine what it was like for Mary to process all this? Because that's where we pick up the story here, is Mary coping, processing, trying to come to terms with this incredible calling that God had given to her. That she was the one who would be the vessel through whom the Son of God would enter into union with a fully human nature. And even though her calling was unique, she was one in many billion, that she, her calling was unique like no one else has ever had. In a very real sense, our calling from God is very similar to hers, and I'll get back to that in a little while. 
our calling is like hers in, a, in the most important way. But let's look at how her calling was confirmed. It's kind of fascinating in the story how that happens. In verse 39, it says that she made a long journey, and this was about, we know, from Middle Eastern geography, it's about a 100-mile journey through the wilderness. So this was a difficult trip she made to go visit her cousin Elizabeth. Now, the angel had told her that to confirm the miracle that God was going to do in Mary's womb, he was going to do another lesser miracle, although still amazing miracle, in the womb of her elderly cousin Elizabeth who was past childbearing years and had been barren all her life, that miraculously she had conceived and there was a child developing in her womb. Of course, it was through natural means. It was through her husband being the father, but the fact that she became pregnant was a miracle. And so the angel told Mary about this. So Mary goes to visit Elizabeth to see the confirmation of this miracle. And when she gets there, the moment she gets there, she gets two very unusual confirmations to her own calling. The first one actually comes from John the Baptist himself, oddly enough. When she gave her normal greeting to Elizabeth, it says that Elizabeth says that John, John the Baptist, who was in her womb about six months in development, leapt for joy within her. Now, I've never been pregnant. I've been close to people who have been pregnant a few times. So I know that by the time you get to that third trimester, it's not that unusual for babies to be bouncing around in the womb a little bit. So there was something about this leap, as it, as it says. There was something about this leap of John, the, the unborn child in the womb of Elizabeth, that communicated to Elizabeth that he was responding to the arrival of Mary and the Messiah who was conceived in her womb. That's an amazing thing. That's a miracle. And think about what's going on there. Back when the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah to tell Zechariah that John the Baptist would be born, be conceived and born miraculously, the angel told Zechariah, the father, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. I don't understand how that works. But somehow the unborn child, John the Baptist, in the womb of his mother, was filled with the Holy Spirit, already called to his prophetic calling. And so that's why Elizabeth Elizabeth doesn't just say, wow, that was a big leap. She said he leapt for joy. John the Baptist was rejoicing in the womb of his mother as he encountered Mary and the Messiah in her womb. Think about it. John was probably about 12 inches tall at that point and probably weighed about two pounds. But already he was prophesying and pointing others to Christ. Just an aside to that, do I need to give any more biblical evidence for the personhood of the child in the womb than that? Even in the womb, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the heart of a sinner... and that sinner then encounters Jesus Christ, that's what we can expect to happen. A leap for joy. The second confirmation comes from Elizabeth. It says in the text that she exclaimed with a loud cry, and in the original Greek, loud cry is emphasized there, a really loud cry. And she said, blessed are you among women. Now, I know how the women in my family are when they meet a family member who's just announced that they got pregnant. You know, the shrieking and screaming and, you know, 
all kinds of dancing around. That's what happens when women greet other women when they find out that they're pregnant. We'll take that times 10 here because we're talking about a pregnancy that would result in the birth of the Messiah. That's how excited Elizabeth was. Why? Well, notice that she calls the just barely conceived child in the womb of Mary, she calls that child my Lord. She was already submitting to him as her Lord, recognizing that this was the promised Messiah. Talk about a confirmation to Mary's faith and a confirmation to her calling. We all want a confirmation in our calling in life. We spend an awful lot of time from the time we're five years old and up trying to figure out why we're here, what we're supposed to do, and, and what our calling is in life. Oh, that we all had that kind of confirmation that Mary had of her unique calling. And so Elizabeth then confirms and honors Mary's faith by saying, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Well, at this point, then, we have Mary's response of faith. And that's what that poetic section is from verse 46 through 455. We call it a song sometimes. We call it the Magnificat after the first word in the Latin translation of it. We call it a song. I doubt that Mary sang it when she first said it. But it's, put, it's given to us in a poetic form. And in a sense, it was like the first Christmas carol, or these, a lot of carols that we have, so to speak, hymns, so to speak, in these first couple of chapters of Luke. But in this poem, she expresses the joy of having her calling confirmed in life. I think it's interesting to break it down and see what caused her such great joy in receiving this calling from the Lord. It's very similar. One thing I want to point out, first of all, is how this prayer, this poem, this expression of praise is saturated in the language of the Old Testament. Matter of fact, it's very similar to the prayer that Hannah prayed. Remember, Hannah was a barren woman who received a miraculous conception and birth so that she could give birth, much like Elizabeth did, she could give birth to Samuel, the prophet and the priest. Well, the language of Hannah's prayer is ex very, very similar to, to, to Mary's prayer. And what that tells us is that Mary knew well that scripture. She had studied it many times. And she saw the importance of it. And she saw the fulfillment of it in God's work of grace in her life. There are also many phrases, it's kind of interesting to do a, a word study and a, a language study of the text. You find out that there are many, many phrases that are borrowed from the book of Psalms. And what that says to us is that Mary, even though she was an unremarkable woman in every worldly sense of the word, she was a student of the scriptures. She loved the word of God. She spent a lot of time in the word of God. She memorized the word of God. And she prayed the word of God. And that's one thing I would really encourage you as you look to Mary's example here as, as a woman of faith is that we all feel, I don't know a single person I've ever met who did, wouldn't say to one degree or another, I have an anemic prayer life. My prayer life is, doesn't have the robustness, doesn't have the, the substance, doesn't have the strength that it should have. Well, the, the, the one way to fix that is to conform your prayers to the word of Scripture to really study and know the scriptures, particularly the Psalms, because the Psalms are a prayer book as well as a praise book. And to train yourself to think like the Psalms, to train yourself to speak like the Psalms and other portions of scripture. That's what Mary did. So when she prayed, scripture came out of her mouth. I, I read a book earlier this year uh, 
by an author named Donald Whitney. It's called Praying the Bible. It's a very short book. You could read it in less than a couple hours. Look it up. I recommend it to you if you're really struggling in your prayer life because what he does is something that many have done, but he, I, I like the systematic way he does it, where you pray through the scriptures, where you read a couple of verses of scripture and then use that section, those verses of scripture to guide you in your prayers. And then when you're done praying through that couple of verses, you move on to the next two or three verses and you pray through the content of that. It, it's a great way of allowing the word of God to conform and train you in prayer, just like Mary obviously did. So having then turned in response to these confirmations to her calling and a confirmation of God's grace at work in her life, she turns to praise God. And what you see immediately is what's happened to her is she has gotten a much bigger view of God's glory. I mean, what has happened to her in the, the couple of weeks, whatever, however long it was leading up to this encounter with Elizabeth and having her calling confirmed, her view of God's glory was, was greatly expanded in her experiences, bigger than ever. And so that's why in verse 46, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now, there's a prayer word that I bet you don't use in your prayer life very often. My soul magnifies the Lord. And I think part of it is, is our, our, our issues with the English and our connotation to the word magnify. Usually when we use the word magnify, almost every time we use the word magnify, what comes to mind is like a magnifying glass where you, you want to watch ants on an anthill. So you take the magnifying glass out and don't put it in the sun or you roast them. But, but you, you, you use the magnifying glass so that you can see what the ants are doing. Something that's very, very small that you can't see. You make it big enough so you can see it and study it. Or a microscope. You want to study an amoeba or some, some other uh, uh, very microscopic form of life. And so you, you put it under a microscope. So it's something that's tiny that you can't see normally with your perspective, but you may use a microscope so you see something that's very tiny, make it big enough to see and study. That's the way we use the word magnify. That's not the way that Mary means it. Matter of fact, she actually means the opposite of that. And the best way to illustrate that, that I've ever heard is to, it, what she's really talking about is what a telescope does. When you, and, and when I'm talking about the ones, the big ones that are in the observatories where you look out and you can see planets and suns, you know, stars, galaxies, things that are huge beyond comprehension, but they're far off and they look small to us because of our limited perspective. And so that's really what the kind of magnification that Mary's talking about here. Something that looks small to us, but is actually huge beyond comprehension, you use the, the telescope to make it big enough to overcome your limitations in perspective to see it for what it is. And that's the kind of magnification that Mary's talking about. Uh, and if that's not helpful to you, if you're not more of a scientific mindset, I, to me, from a sports mindset, here's a sports analogy I can give you. If I'm sitting in the cheap seats at the top of the stadium in a football game and I watch a fantastic, miraculous, unbelievable play, a 60-yard a, a pass to the end zone and the, and the wide receiver bobbles it and falls and catches it, and I can see that from the top of the stadium and jump up and yell in excitement and cheer and, and say, wow, what an amazing play with everybody. But that's nothing like the experience of then going home later and watching it on my 42-inch high-definition television and seeing the replay in high definition, up close, in all of its detail, in slow motion, and seeing how great the play really was 
It's, that's the kind of magnification we're talking about, is overcoming our limitations in sin to see God's glory for what it is. And that's what happened in Mary's life. She was a faithful woman who believed and saw God's glory, but her experiences had caused God's glory to be magnified in her eyes, in her mind, in her heart. To magnify the Lord means to make known to the world how big and great and powerful and glorious he is. And that's the deep desire of her heart in this passage. As John the Baptist would later say, he must increase and I must decrease. He wasn't saying that God must get bigger than he is and I must get physically smaller than I am. He's saying God's glory must be displayed and I need to recede into the background. It's God's glory that's really important. And that's the heart of Mary here. And what happens when you see a bigger view of God's glory? What happens when God's glory is magnified? Well, as she puts it here, her spirit rejoices. That's the heart of a born-again believer when you see God's glory displayed to a greater extent than you've seen it before. That's really what worship is meant to be. When God's glory is is portrayed for you in the gospel, through, through the person and work of Christ, in the scriptures, that's to move you to rejoice in your spirit. And that's what happened to Mary. I can think of two big, huge times in my life when I experienced that, where my view of God's glory got magnified, got bigger, got stretched, and I got to see much more of God's glory than I ever realized before. The first time, of course, is when I was converted, when I went from a false view of God, a very tiny view of God, actually, and a very big view of myself and my role in my religious life, to understanding who God really is, who Jesus Christ is, what the cross is all about, and what grace and the gospel are all about, my spirit rejoiced for a very intense long time after I came to see the full glory of Christ in the cross and understood the gospel. The second time was a few years later when I came to, at college, I began to really study the scriptures and had some great teachers to show me the deeper parts of scripture, and I came to embrace what we call the doctrines of grace or Reformed theology, or Covenant theology, whatever terms we use for it. It's a, it's a deeper, more comprehensive, in-depth understanding of Scripture. And again, what that did is it opened my eyes to see the glory of God in a much bigger way. And I was filled with joy. A long-term, intense, sustaining joy. Because I saw that God is far bigger than I realized he was. And his grace was far more extensive than I had ever understood before. And my soul rejoiced like Mary's soul rejoiced. So what happens when you have this enlarged view of the glory of God? What effect does it have on your view of yourself, your calling, your place in the world, and what's going on in the world? Well, first of all, it magnifies your view of your calling, your status in the world, what you're here to do, what you're here for. Look at verses 48 to 50, where in those verses, Mary just reflects on what an incredible thing God has done in her life, this incredible calling he's given to her. He says, for he looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. You see, Mary is called blessed, not because she did great things for God, but because God did great things for her. That's her own testimony. She was an empty vessel that was filled with the glory of God. And only in God's kingdom can a poor village carpenter's wife or betrothed be a candidate for greatness in the kingdom. 
But Mary's calling, just like your calling and my calling, it wasn't going to be easy. It wasn't probably going to get a lot of earthly recognition. The path to kingdom greatness is always filled with suffering. And for Mary, it meant enduring the perceived shame of her pregnancy. So few people understood how she became pregnant and and believed how she got pregnant. Most people considered her a scandalous woman. And she had to live with that shame of the misperception of what God had done in her life. And I'm sure you've experienced that kind of shame of people misperceiving the grace of God at work in your life. She would have to flee from Herod for her life and her child's life to Egypt and live in Egypt for a significant period of time. And then as you can imagine the suffering of being a sinful parent like you or I raising the perfect son of God, but then once he went public in his ministry, she had to watch him be rejected by his own people, treated harshly, and ultimately led to the cross, where, as Simeon would later prophesy, a sword would pierce her soul at the cross. Her calling was not full of earthly glory or recognition, but from a kingdom perspective, she is considered one of the most blessed women to ever live. You see, that's the way it is. Not many of us are called to positions or callings or statuses from a kingdom perspective that are going to get a lot of accolades and recognition and pats on the back from the world. Not many of us have those kind of callings. Matter of fact, increasingly I think it will bring shame from a worldly point of view. But Mary rejoiced that God and future generations of God's people would always call her blessed because of the great things that God did for her, in her, and through her. Kingdom recognition, remember this, write this down, kingdom recognition is all that really matters. How do you measure success in your life? What success are you striving after? Kingdom impact and kingdom uh, kingdom impact and kingdom recognition is all that really matters. And Mary had that in boatloads. It reminds me of my mother. My mother was a godly housewife who didn't work outside the home until she was almost retirement age for a few years where she took an office job. She had only a high school education in spite of being a very intelligent woman. She had very little of what the world would call wealth and once she died in the early 90s, around 1990, she since then has been largely forgotten by the world. Only those of us who were deeply impacted by her still remember her. So from a world's point of view, what point did her life have? But I continually marvel at the kingdom recognition and impact that her life has had. I'm up here preaching the gospel every week. She had six children who now all walk with the Lord and are having an impact in their callings, all kinds of different callings in many different places around the the, the country. She has many believing grandchildren and great-grandchildren who are taking the message of the gospel and the impact of the kingdom to wherever they are. This one simple woman who the world has forgotten is highly blessed and honored in the kingdom of God. That's how you measure success. So having a bigger view of your status and calling, then notice how it moves in Mary's prayer to a bigger view of God's work in the world. 
You see, that's why we've got to be in the scriptures all the time, because it's so easy to look at things from the world's perspective. And it sure seems like the kingdom's losing all over the place when you look at the world from a horizontal perspective. But Mary wasn't looking from that perspective. She was living in the days of an evil Roman Empire. God's people were powerless under the thumb of many different tyrants. Yet, look at how she viewed the world because she had a scriptural worldview and a scriptural mindset. She says, he, God, has shown strength with his arm. Now, God doesn't have an arm. But that's how the scriptures talk about God, who is a spirit. That's how the scriptures talk about God when he intervenes in the affairs of men, the mundane world under the curse, under the fall. When God gets busy in the midst of this world, he bears his arm. That's the language of Isaiah 52, verse 10. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And God never bared his arm more powerfully than when he sent his son to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life, and then to die for the sins of God's people, and then to raise him from the dead. But notice how Mary talks about what the arm of God is doing in the world. First of all, she talks about his work of justice, of judging sin, of hating sin and condemning sin and punishing sin. That's the first picture you have in verses 51 and 52. She says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. That's the message of Christmas. That's an essential to the gospel. That this, is, this God that we serve, the God who sent his son, is a God who hates sin far more than we can comprehend. A God who must punish sin. A God, a God who is just in every possible way. That's a Christmas message, even if people don't want to hear it. That's a storyline of history. That those who are driven by their pride to power and prosperity in the world are cast down from their throne. They are scattered, cast down, and sent away empty by the strong arm of God. I was listening to uh, the broadcast of Ligonier Ministries, uh, Renewing Your Mind, on Friday morning, and they had a question and answer session between R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur. And one of the questions came up about justice and and R.C. told a story about driving through downtown Orlando, and he saw one of the big mega churches in town, and they had a big sign in front of the church, and it said, God is not angry. And R.C. was offended by the sign. And he said, where does that come from? It doesn't come from Scripture. If God is not angry, what are we saved from, he said. Where's the gospel in that, if God is not angry at sin? And to that, John MacArthur quoted Psalm 7, which says, God is angry with the wicked every day. And then he paused and he said, try putting that on a sign in front of your church. (laughs) Or in a Christmas card. So her view of God's justice is clear and it's great. Secondly, though, look at her view of God's mercy, picking up halfway through verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from the thrones and exalted those of humble estate. 
He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. There's the mercy that anyone who, like Mary, will humbly submit themselves to this Messiah and Lord, who will humbly fear the Lord, believe his word, and submit to him as Lord, will be filled with satisfaction. Incredible satisfaction. First of all, satisfaction in knowing that your sins are forgiven. Satisfaction in knowing that the God who created you is reconciled to you through the blood of his Son. The satisfaction of knowing that you are not going to be left captive to your sins, enslaved to your sin, but you will be delivered from the power of sin, and that Jesus Christ is going to come again and make all things perfect. That is the confidence of faith. That's what comes to those who fear the Lord, that kind of humble, loving devotion and submission to Christ as Lord. You see, Mary is there preaching the gospel. And that brings me to his, her final point in her prayer, her expression of praise, that when you see a bigger view of God's glory, when his glory is magnified in your eyes, you're going to see his faithfulness to his promises. That's in verses 54 and 55, where she says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. You see, she's holding on to the covenant promise that the seed of the woman had come to crush the seed of the serpent. And the promises given to Abraham are now being fulfilled. The promises given to Moses are now being fulfilled. The promises given to David are now being filled. God is faithful to fulfill his promises. She sees that by faith because her view of God's glory has gotten bigger. It's really hard to see that when you just look with physical eyes at the world. But when you look through the eyes of faith, through the language of scripture, and you see what God is doing, you see his arm at work, you realize that he is bringing about the fulfillment of every promise he's ever made to his people. God is faithful. Mary understood that with the birth of this child in her womb, the great reversal was about to take place. She says here, here's her proclamation of the gospel. She says, his mercy is for those who fear him. And then we're reminded of this, how the mighty are brought down, the prideful, the ones who reject the gospel are brought down and those who humble themselves and fear the Lord are exalted. This is the great reversal of all history, and it's happening even as we speak. As Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Or as he said so many times in so many ways, the last will be first and the first last. That's why he would say, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You see, as the opponents of the church said in the book of Acts, these are the men that are turning the world upside down. That's, what, that's, that's not what they meant, but that's what God meant and what was happening. That the first were becoming last, and the last were becoming first. The humble were being exalted, and the prideful were being brought low. I pray that there's another one here this morning that is in that category of the prideful, that is not, that are not willing to humble yourself and fear the Lord and submit to Christ as Savior and Lord. You see, that's why I'm saying that Mary's calling was unique. She was the only one.
whoever would give birth to the Messiah. But in a much deeper and more important sense, she was just like us. She was a sinner like us, but she was given the same calling that we're given, which is to bear Christ before the world. One of my favorite names, we actually squeezed it in at the end. We gave it to our youngest son as a middle name, is Christopher. The, word Chris, the name Christopher means Christ bearer. It's a great name. And that's what we all are. We all bear Christ. The spirit of Christ dwells within us. And the spirit of Christ works in us and through us to bring Christ to the nations. We are all Christ bearers. And we share in this calling that Mary had. I want to ask you, what is your calling? What are you going to be when you grow up? What do you aspire to? How do you measure success? I am so glad that having done this work of grace in all our lives, that he uses us in all these different callings, whether it's in the sciences or in education or in medicine, wherever you're called to serve, you are a Christ bearer to allow the spirit of Christ to shine through you so that the light of Christ impacts and changes the world. And when that happens, you get kingdom recognition, kingdom honor, kingdom impact. And that's really all that matters. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Mary was faithful to her calling. Thank you for her humility and what an example it is to us. And thank you that like her, our sole purpose here on earth is to bear witness to Christ and to be impactful for his kingdom in all the spheres of influence that you give us in our family, in our neighborhood, in our workplace, in our school, wherever we may be. May we bear Christ before the world in humility, giving him all the praise and glory. And may our view of your glory expand accordingly. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.